X-ray. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Kira, are you there? I'm here. Hi, good morning. Yay, we're so happy to be back. So today on Everything is Interesting, we're going to take a closer look at one of the most ubiquitous fruits in America, the banana. The banana, huh? Oh, yeah, the banana. I'm excited about the banana. What's going on? <laughs> What's going be. on with the banana? <laughs> well, <laughs> who doesn't love them? They're the cornerstone of snack time and the foundation of the banana split. The banana is a fruit staple. It's a standout snack that comes conveniently packaged in its own peel and packs a blood sugar boost of starchy sugars and essential nutrients like potassium. And it makes really, really tasty bread, too. You know, the best. Yeah. I don't know, unless you hate banana bread, but I don't know who does. And really, just look at all of the bananas out there. Go to any grocery store or any convenience store, for that matter, and look at all the kinds of bananas you have. I mean, you have so many banana options. No, that's actually not true. You really don't no? have a lot of banana options. No. Well, as it, I mean, if you're in South America, maybe, but if you're here... As it turns out, those bananas we find in the store, they might as well, well they might as well be one giant banana, at least from a genetic standpoint, because that tasty yellow fruit that we get in American grocery grocery stores are all clones. <laughs> you should be scared of clones. So, what is a clone exactly? A clone is an identical copy of an original organism, right down to its genetic makeup. And if I was able to up and clone you, Jefferson, we'd end up with an exact copy of you and all of your DNA that makes you, you. Exciting, right? See, Jefferson, right now, you and I, well, we've all got these sort of unique set of genetics, right? I've, I've Every been told. human. You've, oh, you're hey, very unique, Jefferson. What's up? I've got a unique <laughs> I have not, set of genetics. I, I have not heard a desire you? to be cloned, but I, have, <laughs> uh, but I have heard the uniqueness thing. You do. So you've got all these chromosomes and this DNA that you inherited in sort of a unique cocktail of ingredients that was given to you by both your mom and your dad. You, Jefferson, are the product of sexual reproduction. Gross. (laughs) And how dare you? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so most multicellular organisms like us reproduce through sex because it's a handy way to give your offspring a diverse set of genes. When a mommy and a daddy really love each other, they each donate a copy of their complete set of chromosomes by way of an egg or a sperm to a baby. Isn't that romantic? They they handed me that? (laughs) The physical traits. A little package, just there you go. That's right, we love you so much, here's some genes. So the physical traits that will end up being expressed by the baby are a combination of the genes from both parents. And a diverse set of genes gives the baby a fighting chance in a dynamic world full of diseases and environmental challenges. But you see, cloning isn't reproduction in the classical sense at all. It's simply making an exact genetic copy of a single unique individual. So there's no mixing and matching of chromosomes, no unique genetic expression, just an identical copy. The bananas that we find in grocery stores today are from the varietal known as the Cavendish, and they pretty much all come from plants that are clones of each other. So each banana you buy in the store varies in physical characteristics a little bit because the development of the fruit happens after the plant itself has been cloned. 
But despite these slight variations in the fruit, all the banana plants share the same genetic code as the original plant from the clone that, from which the clones were propagated. So genetically speaking, aside from a few minor mutations in the genes that occur as a result of repeated cloning, every Cavendish banana plant is virtually indistinguishable from every other Cavendish banana plant out there. Weird. So Gross. How did all this come about? Why did we end up cultivating the Cavendish banana plant by way of cloning? And for that matter, how do we even go about cloning a banana plant in the first place? Well, to find the answer, we've got to take a peek at the history of the banana and the rise of the fruit's popularity in the United States. To begin with, throughout history, bananas and their many cousins, such as the plantain, have been a huge staple in the diets of people living in the tropical and subtropical regions of the world. Bananas are full of nutrients and they grow all year round, which makes them a really reliable and convenient source of sort of nutrient-dense calories. While the earliest known writing that includes mention of bananas dates back to something around 500 BC, it wasn't until the 19th century that bananas extended their reach and became popular in the United States. In 1804, the banana landed in New York and began being sold as a novelty fruit. Years later, as consumers were starting to become more conscious of the role fruits play in health and well-being, the banana started to really take off. Are we going to get into the CIA stuff, by the way? Not that I know of. The, All right. the CIA stuff? Yeah. No, no, you guys bananas. keep going. Yeah. Oh, yeah, CIA stuff. Keep going. All right, back to bananas, guys. Fruits of all kinds at this point in time were becoming more commonly accepted as staples of a healthy diet. And bananas suddenly started appearing as ingredients in cookbooks and being published in popular literature as one of the many health foods out there. And they were even marketed as good for babies. Bananas are a solid food that doctors now include in baby's diet. And since they are so good for baby, I think we all should try it. The banana's peel was also a big factor in the fruit's growing popularity. Concern for public health was becoming increasingly widespread, and the concept of a fruit that grows in its own hermetically sealed peel, you know, safe from germs and disease and gross stuff until you open it and consume it, well, that was certainly, you might say, appealing. Okay, I understand what you just did there. But I, <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I'm, not gonna, I'm not going to condone it. I'm not going <laughs> to condone it, but I understand it. I'm really I will say about that, that it is also the kind of maneuver by a propagandist who's trying to avoid the United Fruit Company true, real story about bananas, which ain't all about science. It ain't about science. It's also about deep, deep-seated scandal and Guatemalan revolutions and civil wars and inciting violence in other countries to protect American banana interests and the reason and there is such a phrase as banana republic keep going that's that's the story we're going to get to at some point i'm going to eat a little bit at a time every time i'm supposed to say something i'm going to say that instead go ahead it's true <laughs> uh, as we uncovered the science behind bananas there was a whole lot of dark stuff about the industry of bananas as well but we didn't really include that just because of white time. privilege uh, but feel free to, to interject with it <laughs> instead i get to make puns like appealing yeah that's uh, what keep that it light is. keep it light guys oh boy yeah, that's, a, again, a whole other show. We need, like, a whole other, like, the political side of bananas. I'll add that. Thank you. Thank you, Jefferson. Yeah. Okay, so bananas fall into the category of fruits known as climacteric fruits. And as we all know, there's nothing more delicious than a ripe banana and nothing grosser for democracy. than an unripe banana. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so go ahead. Climacteric fruits are those that have the ability to continuously ripen even after being harvested from the plant, which is really handy when you want to preserve something as delicate as a banana for like a long journey overseas, but still have it ripe and ready to eat for your customers at the other end. 
I'm Chiquita Banana, and I've come to say Bananas have to ripen in a certain way And when they're flecked with brown and have a golden hue Bananas taste the best and are the best for you You can put them in a salad Grief? No, not yet, my dear That greenish way you're looking means that you are ripe for cooking How about me? No, no, when you are fully ripe, my dear Those little flecks of brown appear Me? You're most digestible, my friend. Delicious, too, from end to end. I'm not so sure about the salad comment in that commercial. I wish somebody <laughs> would sing to me about all of my fruit. I wish somebody just was in my kitchen and would sing to me and be like, your apples are ripe now, you can eat them. <laughs> but they, not yet. They only will do that to, uh, to, to cover up a CIA plot. That's the only time you'll get those good songs. <laughs> if you get engaged in a deep CIA plot, we'll probably come up with some jingles. And if you watch oh. the commercial, it's all like this little cartoon. You'll probably find some really politically incorrect stuff. I will not stand for this whitewashing so. of the banana controversy. <laughs> Sorry. Apologize. We haven't whitewashed it. We just, we've just not. It's just the science. Just, the depolarization yeah, of science. Yeah, we're just talking okay, about some science here, guys. Yep. Climate change. Okay, point. go ahead. Believe me, if we got political, we'd get political. I know. This is fun. I all right, it. so let's go back to I'm talking about clim- climacteric fruit, right? When a climacteric fruit like a banana is exposed to the gas ethylene, then the fruit is stimulated to produce, you guessed it, more ethylene. And a climacteric fruit releases ethylene as part of its natural ripening process. So this is why climacteric fruits like bananas, pears, and avocados ripen faster when they're packed and sealed in close quarters with one another. Do you ever like get a green avocado to ripen by throwing it in a paper bag with a banana? Only when I was fighting for democracy. Right. That's no, I actually never have. I have ripened stuff in a bag before. Did it work? I don't really remember. I think, <laughs> I, I think, I think what I remember is that, here's what I remember. When I had an avocado out, Okay. Then it, they, they, I kept getting avocados because I like, put them in smoothies. And then they, uh, I know it sounds weird, but it's actually pretty good. It is good. And then it I, is good. Yeah, yeah. It changed the texture. And then I, uh, and, but they kept just going bad. So I started putting them in the fridge. That's a conspiracy, too. Okay, no, it's not. That's just science. <laughs> you don't need to put <laughs> politics in everything, I'm sorry, Kira. I'm just I mean, sometimes it's just about science. It's not always like political conspiracies <laughs> everywhere. You'll be a weirdo. And people say he we fooled you. He just fooled no. you. So, so and, but with the banana, I usually leave those out. And I usually haven't had a, I haven't uh, go ahead what am I supposed to do with bananas <laughs> well the reason it works is because of the ethylene right because there's ethylene in the bag sure. and it, it ripens all these clumping the same way that's an alternative gas right coming out of corn no no that's ethanol I know the difference <laughs> go ahead now you're just confusing our listeners. Thanks, Jefferson. Ethylene. Ethylene. That's that, like, Rick, like, that, 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 that Barry song. Ethylene. All right, let's go back. You get a banana and it's an avocado in a bag. It's not a beginning of a bad joke. <laughs> it's some science. It's a pheromone, actually. So... <clears throat> What happens when you put these fruits in a bag is that there's a positive feedback loop that gets established. As the banana ripens, it produces ethylene gas, which then prompts the banana and the avocado to ripen further and produce more ethylene. As more and more ethylene is produced, both the banana and the avocado's ripening accelerates faster and faster until you have banana guacamole. Yeah, and, and, and it works. So it works. It's a good thing to do. It does. It does yeah. work. That's what the more ripe the banana is, the more ethylene it's producing, and so the the grosser the banana, and the longer my car the will better go. your avocado will ripen. But the grosser your banana will be when you open that bag. Oh. So 
because you know the feedback. And the, mo- the more big corn, never mind. I, I <laughs> now you're on my side. Yes, that was two against one. <laughs> so another essential uh, piece of the ripening of uh, to the ripening of climacteric fruit is heat, right? So shipping bananas in low temperature controlled containers is what makes it possible to sort of curb the ripening process during transport. Once the bananas reach their final destination at the store or wherever and are returned to room temperature, then the ripening process kind of starts up again just in time for people to buy them. Put them in a pie, any way you want to eat them. It's impossible to beat them, but bananas like the climate of the very, very tropical equator. So you should never put bananas in the refrigerator. (laughs) (laughs) And there's your PSA for the morning. Where is this woman? I want her in my kitchen. That's the Chiquita banana person. I got a bunch of stuff to say about Chiquita banana. But rather than saying it right now, I just remember the jingle. And it went, (laughs) Chiquita banana, and I'm here to say, eat a banana every day. I think it went something like that. Dang, that really was an effective jingle. There's also the one my mom used to always sing it to me, the one about uh, get, get rid of your teacher in an easy way. Is that a, was that a real song or was that I a joke? I think it's probably like, uh, like you know, the, I, no, nah, I think it's not real. Oh, too bad. Yeah, that's the one she always used to sing to me. All right. Eat a chiquita banana, put the peel on the floor. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is getting good. Right. Okay, keep going. So the banana's sweet taste, its nutritional value, convenient natural packaging, and its ability to be stored, shipped, and ripened upon arrival all contributed to the rise of the banana's popularity in the United States. And as the demand for consumers from consumers for bananas grew, so did the pressure on banana production. So small-scale cultivation gave way to mass production, focused on maximizing crop yield and minimizing spoilage. Banana traders began to whittle down the thousands of different varieties of bananas to those few that had very high yields, you know, ideal harvesting seasons, and a resilience to the stress of transport and shipping. So one variety eventually emerged as king, the Big Mike. It was sweet, palatable, and most importantly, it had an extra sturdy peel that protected the fruit inside from damage. So advancements in shipping technology and practices allowed the production and consumption of the Big Mike banana to soar, and the banana industry serving America began to move steadily into solely, solely producing this one type of banana. Is it named after the wrapper? I, I don't think Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep, it is. yep, yep, let's go with yes. Now, mm-hmm. when you discover one variety of plant that sort of ticks all the boxes of a successful and popular product, then you know it's kind of ideal for business if you can guarantee the perfect reproduction of that type of plant over and over and over again. By the way, Jefferson, did you know that the banana tree itself is not technically a tree? I know, it's a conspiracy. (laughs) It is a conspiracy. It's actually the largest known herbaceous flowering plant. Pretty neat. I didn't so, so give me another yesterday. example of an herbaceous flowering plant, like a fern. No, the fern is a fern. What's an herbaceous flowering <laughs> fern plant? Is a fern, no, is a any, fern. Anything that's not a shrub or a tree. Yeah. It's so like a rose. A, a rose is an herbaceous I flowering think a rose plant. Is, isn't a rose a shrub? I want to say yes to that. What would be the closest thing? You know, what, what, what should I? What, what's the garden variety? <laughs> uh, herbaceous flowering <laughs> plant. Uh, good question. I mean, I mean, anything, anything that grows that doesn't you know, have knows? woody growth. Do you know who knows right. the answer to that question? So most most flowers, CIA. yes, roses, wheat. Peas. Somebody text oh, okay. us another herbaceous flowering right now, plant, I please. I'm Googling it. Keep going. <laughs> 
No, I think anything. Because, like, trees have that woody growth, right? They have that very sturdy trunk, and they have a very specific way of growing, which we're actually going to get into in a minute. But herbaceous plants are the ones that, you know, that you would get, like, a potted house plant or, you know, any pretty much anything that grows yeah. in, like, an, an English garden. guys, yeah. Yeah. Peonies, uh, potatoes, mint, ferns. Again, about, I'm just pulling tu- this out of my mind and not what about, Google. What about tubers? Are they related to tubers? So I just think I it's a funny know. word. Okay, keep going. Let's do I this. would assume that a tuber, because a tuber, like the carrot, is just a, a root. It's, I've it's ruined everything. I have ruined it everything. Is. No, we're going to edit on, this I just whole part. This question. I'm getting Wait fired. Wait a second. I have an answer. Okay. And the answer is yes. That is an herbaceous plant because I just read that tomatoes are herbaceous plants, and tomatoes and potatoes they're like very similar to each other. They're in the same family, and the tomato is the fruit that grows on top of the herbaceous plant, the the the, the, the plant mass, and then the potato is part of the root of the same kind of herbaceous plant so there you're boom drop the mic <laughs> okay well, i don't even know where we were anymore okay so for a lot of food crops the only way to get a new yield is to cross pollinate and hope you end up with a new generation that has similar characteristics to the last but for herbaceous plants including the banana you also have the option of doing something kind of different and kind of wacky if you've never gardened before. You can cut off a piece of a single plant, stick it in the ground, and voila, you grow yourself a whole new exact copy of that first plant that will eventually grow its own fruits. A clone. Now, you can't just hack off a piece of a human and wait for it to turn into another human. Or can you? No, no, you can't. You can't. Definitely you can't. So please don't try that at home. Please don't do that. (laughs) But why can you do that with an herbaceous plant like bananas? Well, it has to do with the cellular structure of plants and the fact that they have the ability to grow and develop their cells long after the plant has reached maturity. So they do this by keeping clusters of stem cells in areas called meristems. These stem cells are undifferentiated or totipotent, and that means they have yet to develop to serve a specific purpose. Maybe that stem cell will become a leaf cell that can perform photosynthesis, or maybe it will develop into a root cell with long root hairs for absorbing water, or perhaps it will become a hard, hollow xylem cell that allows water to move up the plant like soda up a straw. To put this all in perspective, a grown human like you or I is almost entirely made up of differentiated cells. So all of our cells have essentially grown up to serve a very specific purpose in our bodies. A bone cell looks different from a liver cell, which looks different from a skin cell. Each cell already is what it has already set out to be in the first place and cannot change into another type of cell. Okay. Hmm. But stem cells? stem cells? Well... Stem cells. Yeah, well, so within a plant's meristem, the cells are like blank slates, yeah. just waiting to be given the right signal from the rest of the plant to start growing and turning into whatever type of tissue the plant needs more of. You capture the meristem and you can grow an entirely new plant from it. So as I understand it, you can't, I can't like take a whole, I can't make a whole new Kira by taking off like a little piece of like Kira's arm. And I mean the same Kira when I say that. Yeah. I don't mean Kira. Yeah, okay. it depends on which one of us you're talking about. Right. <laughs> right. So let's use, let's use Jeff. I can't make a new Jeff by like using Jeff's pinky. Not yet. Uh, but but we have stem cells, right? And that those could those could make a new Jeff or a new Kira. Well, well so uh, maybe. You're right in the sense that we humans do have stem cells in our bodies and We're we have them in our bodies right now. But there's some major differences between the adult stem cells that we possess now and what we would call embryonic stem cells. 
So the adult stem cells you have right now are, uh, they're called tissue specific, meaning they've already decided what part of the body they belong to. <coughs> like the stem cell got hired, one of the stem cells, let's say, got hired by the heart company, but it hasn't yet been assigned to the position of heart pumper or oxygen carrier or whatever. So the cell, while not yet completely differentiated, is still already committed to being part of the heart. So on the flip side, embryonic stem cells are in a position to become any and every cell you can think of in the body. All cells in the body contain all the DNA for the organism. But in an embryonic stem cell, all the genes in that DNA are exposed and ready to be utilized and copied. Their DNA is not neatly packed away in metaphorical filing cabinets the way it is in like a mature like differentiated cell. like unpeeled banana. <laughs> yes, very good. Sad banana. <laughs> In a mature heart cell, only the genes needed to do heart jobs are exposed and ready to be used to make proteins or other necessary molecules for the heart. Whereas in an undifferentiated embryonic stem cell, all the genes are ready to be used to make anything. So the stem cells in the meristem of a banana plant are more akin to the embryonic stem cells that we possess as humans during the first five days or so of our development in the womb. Still, how do these clusters of plant stem cells, the meristems, become fully-fledged banana plant clones? Well, it has to do with where the meristems are located on the plant. The banana plant has long, fibrous roots, which grow to create extensive root mats. Within these root mats, there are many meristem growth points, full of undifferentiated stem cells. These are what develop into new shoots, where new banana plants begin to form. And if you so desire, you as a human can take one of these growth points from the plant and you can break it into smaller pieces. And as long as you pull apart the growth point and capture at least one meristem cluster in each piece, then that piece will be capable of growing into a fully mature banana plant within two years. After the discovery of the Big Mike banana varietal, with its ideal characteristics, pretty much all the bananas sold commercially in the United States were grown by hacking off pieces of the roots from a Big Mike banana plant, each piece containing a meristem full of stem cells, of course, and using those pieces to grow new clones. Then pieces of those copies would be hacked off again and used to grow copies of the copies, which would grow copies of the copies mm -hmm. of the copies, guaranteeing that each successive generation of the Big Mike banana plants had the same genetic makeup and thus the same desirable characteristics as the original. This, incredibly, this incredible consistency in that product and the ability to rapidly grow new crops was really great for the banana business. As, you know, George Bluth Sr. might put it, there's always money in the banana stand. How much clearer can I say, there's always money in the banana stand! No touching! No touching! No touching! No touching! So, okay, I thought that you said that today's banana... Uh, banana... I'm just going to go Banna. <laughs> well, it's, you know, too many syllables. Too close to Bannon. Like, there's no, like, why not just go Banna? Okay, from today's Banna was the Cavendish variety. What happened to Big Mike? Is it more white privilege? You're trying to keep out the wrapper banana? Yep, uh, that's right. And what, you got it. And is the Cavendish it's, Big Mike beef akin to that of Biggie and Tupac? What's going on with the kind of yeah, bananas? It's part of the conspiracy. You figured it out. Those are two totally different things. I don't understand. Oh. I mean, we got to stay on subject here. We can't, you keep, you keep confusing me. Well, I don't, I don't know that tangent of the story. 
story, but the overarching story of the banana clones certainly doesn't end here with the Big Mike, because the fate of the Big Mike is actually kind of a tragedy that was born of its initial success, you see? The consistency and the uniformity of the fruit of the Big Mike brought about from the cloning, so, you know, the so many rapid times of cloning of the varietal, that was the very thing that led to its downfall. The risk of genetic uniformity, as is the case with clones, is that a single detrimental change in the environment can put every single genetically identical individual at risk. This brings us back to what we were saying about how a diverse set of genes acquired through sexual reproduction can be a pretty strong player influencing the survival of a species. Genetic variation keeps species from putting all their eggs in one basket, so to speak. Varying genetics provides the opportunity for mutations and adaptations to occur in individuals that help them to survive better under changing conditions. So, imagine that you have a herd of 100 unicorn clones, and all of them are identical genetic copies of one another. Terrifying. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, now that you say that, yes. It's actually... I can hear the terror in your voice. <laughs> the galloping unicorns. Unicorn clones. Unicorn clones. A hundred of them. Coming yeah. straight for you. Le- depending. But they're unicorn they're clones cartoons. for democracy. I don't think so. They're not, okay, <laughs> unicorns can't We've vote. gone off the rails. That's crazy. All right, this back is, to My it. job in this show, by the way, is to keep us from derailing. Okay, so genetics determines the characteristics <laughs> and the traits. Well, you're certainly not doing that job. Okay, genetics determines the characteristics and traits expressed by an organism, right? Yes. So let's say that all of these organisms be exact copies of each other all carry a gene that makes them unable to survive temperatures under 50 degrees. Fragile little unicorns. Right. So as soon as the cold snap hits and the temperature drops, every single one of your clone unicorns is going to die. All 100 of them. Because each unicorn clone is just as susceptible to the change in temperature as every other unicorn clone. That's why we like the genetic diversity, yeah. Right, we're getting to that. So, So now imagine that instead of clones, you had 100 unicorns that were all born from the mixing and matching of genes, genetic variation, during good old fashioned reproduction. So each of these 100 unicorns would have similar but unique genetic makeups. And there is a chance that somewhere along the line, maybe, I don't know, six of these unicorns inherited a mutated gene that in fact made them robust to changes in temperature. Now, when the cold snap hits, uh, 94 of your unicorns with the fatal cold-sensitive gene, they perish. But the six with the mutated gene survive. And they go on to breed and pass on this handy-dandy, cold-hardy trait to their offspring. And your population of unicorns grows to see another day. I think you just described Darwinian evolution if, like, Darwin had found the island of unicorns. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, if you look at evolution, right, it's all about population die-off due to some sort of external change, and then followed by the survival of a few unique genetic individuals that are resilient to that change, and then the passing on of those resilient genes to the next generation. But okay, let's bring it back to bananas. Okay, so like the unicorn clones, the clones of the Big Mike's banana, not the rapper, the plant. I believe that was in- the best sentence that's ever been uttered on this radio show. Whatever the hell <laughs> you just said. Okay, the unicorn clones and the Big Mike bananas. Like, that's like everything. <laughs> it's like every subculture. You know, it's like My Little Pony plus like NWA. I love it. Keep going. <laughs> Save it. That's our t-shirt. That's our t-shirt slogan. Okay, so they were, they, all of these clones were unfortunately helpless in the face of environmental change. And in this particular case, it was the devastating Panama disease, which is a fungus in the soil that attacks the roots and then goes on to kill the plant. And because the cloned crops were all essentially identical individuals, 
uh, they were all equally susceptible to Panama disease, and it was able to wipe out vast quantities of the Big Mike varietal in no time. So by the 1960s, trading the Big Mike banana was unsustainable. Banana traders, instead of learning a lesson from the failure of the Big Mike clones, turned instead to the Cavendish subgroup of banana, and again just began to clone and cultivate it with fervor. One of the things that made the Cavendish the obvious next choice was its apparent immunity to Panama disease. But now the Cavendish banana is facing the same risk as the Big Mike. In an ironic twist of nature, Panama disease has now adapted a strain that is capable of killing off the previously resistant Cavendish banana. So it was genetic diversity that allowed the fungus responsible for Panama disease to adapt and evolve a strain capable of penetrating the Cavendish's defenses. And it was the lack of genetic diversity that left the Cavendish clones susceptible to it. So in nature, the Cavendish, too, would have been steadily reproducing, mixing genetics and perhaps breeding new varieties that could keep up with the changing face of Panama disease. But alas, the Cavendish banana as we know it is still genetically identical to the original plants cultivated at the end of the Big Mike banana rain continuously producing clones rather than letting the banana plants evolve naturally through sexual reproduction left no room for significant genetic diversity putting the iconic yellow fruit That's at big rest. mike you're talking about are we big bringing mike. By big mike back this is the big mike rain right here well let's play a play a big mike okay go ahead at least mm-hmm. the cavendish banana is not the only variety of banana out there in the world so if we do end up losing it And with a little bit of luck, one of the other thousands of types of banana out there may emerge in the wake of the Cavendish's demise. And if we pay attention to the lessons of the past, perhaps we won't rely so heavily on cloning a single variety in the future, and instead we'll celebrate the many types of banana the world has to offer. Yeah, celebrate diversity! All night on a drink of rum X-Ray.